Welcome to the Therapeutic Food Solutions Podcast. I'm your host, Mary Mitchell. I'm an integrative nutrition health coach, therapeutic diet expert, and founder of The Road to Living Whole. There are many different diets out there. It's hard to know which one is right for you with your chronic illness and autoimmune disease. In this podcast, I'm going to share with you the foundational pieces every single therapeutic diet out there shares, and also how to use the best one for your particular diagnosis. If you've been looking for a meal planning partner, help navigating the complicated healthcare system, and want to feel better quickly, I'm your girl. Grab your kombucha and notebook. Let's dive in. Detoxification is greatly understood in today's world. There are many different detoxes touted to solve all of your health concerns, many people claiming to be experts but are actually hurting more than they're helping. And today, Spencer and I will be diving into detox, and I'm super excited to share this episode with you. We're just going to jump in. Spencer, would you please introduce yourself to our listeners, who you are, you know, what you study, where you work, all that good stuff. Sure, Marion. So my name is Spencer Feldman. Uh, I have been formulating and manufacturing detox products for over 20 years. Uh, I have a website called Remedy Link you can go and visit. And so my origin story basically is uh, I wanted to be an emergency room surgeon and uh, they were doing some vaccinations at my college for, I think it was measles or mumps or whatever. And I got some mercury poisoning from it and it made my hands shake so bad that I couldn't drink soup because it would spill into the bowl before I got to my mouth. I went to a doctor who wanted to give me drugs. I'm like, yeah, but that doesn't explain why my hand is shaking, which I actually under only understood like. 10 years later. And so there goes my ability to, you know, hold a scalpel. So I'm obviously not going to be a surgeon. So I kind of recalibrated what I was going to do and got into the, uh, into the industry of manufacturing things for doctors. I figured if I couldn't be the kind of doctor I wanted to be, then maybe I could play a role in a supportive, in a supportive role for the physicians. And actually it was great because, um, I, it turns out that, uh, I'm very well suited the way my mind works in terms of trying to understand kind of multivariable equations to try to figure out, you know, ways in which to look at complex problems and break it down to smaller pieces and, and come up with protocols. So I, you know, actually, I suppose it was a good thing in retrospect. That is so cool. I feel like Sometimes we kind of have this path that we want to do. And when we can't do it, we kind of lose ourselves. But in it, you actually found hmm. your calling and how how well suited you are. That's that's really awesome. Um, you know, as we were getting to know each other before this episode, I you just have so much to share. And I cannot wait to really dive into detoxification. And it leads us so much deeper. And, um, you know, and there's so many layers to this. Can you introduce our listeners to detoxification, what it is, maybe what it isn't? Sure. So, you know, our we're exposed to things that aren't good for us uh, at our, on a regular basis. And, you know, historically, that's been the case. You know, we our bodies have an innate ability to detoxify metals and chemicals. You know, we evolved with exposure to arsenic and well water and the occasional snake and spider bite poisonous mushrooms. So we, we have a capacity. Uh, the challenge is a modern world has exposed us to toxic metals and chemicals in greater amounts 
and in, and in new forms, um, ways in which our body doesn't know how to handle. Now, maybe in 200 years, we will evolve to be able to handle them, but we're in this intermediary phase now in our generation and probably the next two or three where our bodies haven't evolutionarily caught up with the environment that we're in. And so we're, there's a lot of chronic diseases as the body is you know, struggling to deal with these toxins it really doesn't understand how to deal with. Um, you know, and someone might say, well, gosh, you know, isn't that just a bit of uh, over, uh, you know, over exaggeration, you know, we, we do standard, we do testing to make sure that the toxins, that the chemicals we're exposed to aren't, aren't a problem. And I'm like, well, yeah. So when a new food dye or preservative comes into the, into the marketplace, you know, the testing should be done, you know, it was failed with aspartamine for political and financial reasons, but when when the process is done in a, in a noble and, and ethical manner, uh, these things are tested, and uh, you they're only let in when they are below a certain threshold for toxicity. Right? Even salt is toxic in a certain amount. So okay, it's only mild, it's only at the amounts that that is going to be used in industry. It's at small enough levels. It's not a problem. So let's say at a uh, hundred parts per million, it starts causing problems, and it's only kept at ten parts per million. Right, but what happens when you have a million, a thousand chemicals all at subclinical toxic levels? There are no tests that can ever be done for the thousands of chemicals we're all exposed to and how they synergistically interplay. And so, you know, we're all in this giant chemical metal soup and it's a giant experiment. And the outcome of the experiment, unfortunately, is a lot of chronic disease for people. So, Yes, we are exposed to small amounts typically, but uh, some people, like if you're a hairdresser or you're working as a mechanic and you're on solvents, the exposure will be greater. And then even for the average person, a thousand small exposures do add up and they add up synergistically. So, you know, the question is then, all right, um, that's the world we live in. Uh, you know, lots of great advantages to living in the 21st century, you know, um, modern dentistry and refrigeration and the internet. And, you know, I wouldn't necessarily go back to the life of someone in the 1700s, but I want to understand the costs that I might be paying for living in today's world and how I can intelligently work with those so I don't pay those prices, right? So let's talk about what, what detox is. Um, if a toxin is water soluble, you just pee it out. That doesn't mean it doesn't damage a person, but the damage is limited to while it's in the body. And then the body just has to fix whatever damage it did. The trick comes in, the trouble comes in when a toxin's fat soluble. Now you can't pee it out. Now it's going to get stuck at the fat and, you know, the lipids. And that's all the membranes in the body are all lipids. So it gets stuck in the body and it causes problems. Um, now, what I want to talk about is, well, let's, let's talk about what makes something toxic per se, right? So we have a lot of proteins and fats in the body, and they're fragile. They break down. Uh, they can misfold. They can get damaged, oxidized, rancid. And we have systems to repair them. Toxins typically do their toxicity by damaging fats and proteins in the body. Now, if a toxin is only mildly toxic, the body can deal with it. And if it's really if it's really reactive, then it will react to the tissue and then it can't react anymore because it gets locked up in whatever it reacted to. But then there are these toxins that are mildly, that they are reactive enough to cause problems. 
but not so much that they lock themselves up in what they're reacting with. And I call these catalytic toxins. Catalytic meaning the, the thing that is causing the effect itself is not changed, right? So for instance, if you have um, uh, the catalytic converter in your car, it uses metals, platinum, palladium, to change the, or uh, accelerate the combustion of unburnt fuels and gases, right? Now the catalytic converter doesn't change in the process of what it does, right? It doesn't get used up. So you can keep using the catalytic converter over and over and over again. It's not, it's not used up in the process. And that's what some of these toxins are. As long as they're in the fat and they're not going to go on her, go away on their own necessarily, they keep causing problems. And so we keep accumulating more and more and we keep getting more and more of the damage or the damage starts to accelerate. And then at a certain point in time, the body's ability to homeostatically maintain itself in balance trips up, loses itself, and then you start to see the the symptomatic effects of all these catalytic toxins we can't get rid of. So, really, what detoxification is is getting a fat soluble toxin to become water soluble. You want to be able to, to urinate it out. And so, the way to think about it is you've got a greasy dish. Um, what if you put soap on the dish, it chemically combines with the grease, renders it water soluble, and you can rinse the dish clean, and, and there you go. We're looking for biological soaps that we can eat, that we can take internally, that won't harm us, but will combine with the fat-soluble toxins, and then we can urinate them out. That, in a nutshell, Marianne, is what I consider detox to be. That is the best description of detoxification I've ever heard. <laughs> like that, I feel for me made it super clear on what it is. And I feel like you, there, that was, that was so deep. You know, one of the things I hear from people is you never have to detox because the liver is detoxing all of the time. And I feel like you address that myth, I would say, or I would call it a myth so well because our modern world, we are exposed to all these different chemicals and sometimes they the threshold kind of moves and it gets bigger and bigger as there's more exposure. I like I remember learning about how the FDA works and the EPA works and how the, they change the goalposts basically because mm -hmm. they literally can't minimize it in our modern world. So they have to kind of move that threshold up. But then I also think combined that with poor diets and we're not getting the things mm -hmm. that our body needs to be able to function optimally. So you, you did talk about that where, you know, we need those foods that can help bind with these toxins and make them water soluble. I feel like let's talk about mm -hmm. that from here. Sure. Sure. So um, probably the most well-known kind of home detox protocol would be a coffee enema. And so um, the way a coffee enema works is the coffee stimulates something in the liver called cytochrome P450, which is an enzyme that changes the oxidation of the chemical involved. It, it, in a simple way, you could say it adds oxygen to a chemical that you can't get rid of. Now, that temporarily renders the chemical more toxic, but no big deal because a millionth or a billionth of a second, and actually, yes, that's how fast chemical reactions happen in the body in um, micro and nanoseconds. Uh, a billionth of a second later, that oxygen will then get attached to something else, 
it's called a conjugating agent. And you've heard of some of them. Glutathione would be the big one, but also um, glucuronic acid, methyl groups, sulfur, B5. There's a number of things that can attach to toxins. So it's a two-step process. Cytochrome P450 prepares the toxin for the attachment of the conjugate. And now it's water soluble and you can urinate it out. Um, now, so what I did is I said, wow, you know, coffee enemas are pretty amazing. Can I make them better? Well, first off, I don't want to do an enema. I don't want to spend half an hour in a bathtub laying on my side with a, you know, a liter of coffee in my colon. And I said, well, you know, what about making it as a suppository? And so that's what we did. We use organic coffee and we put it in as a suppository. And so now you can eat 10 seconds of suppositories in and you can go about, you know, doing whatever else you're doing. But then it occurred to me, I'm like, well, wait a minute. That's only phase one. That's only the cytochrome P450 side of it. What, what happens if people don't have these other conjugating elements? Let's say someone's low on glutathione and you can't eat it because glutathione is a tripeptide. It's three amino acids. The body will digest it down into those three amino acids. And some of it will get turned back to glutathione, but not most of it. That's why you hear people getting glutathione IVs. They're trying to raise their glutathione because it can't take it orally. Now there's some things you can take orally. You can take glucuronic acid and vitamin B5 and, um, and the sulfur and the methyl. There's some things you can't, glutathione. Glutathione happens to be the most powerful of the conjugating agents. So you can do some with food, absolutely. And some, you know, you, you want to kind of work with from different perspectives. So we added all those conjugating agents with a coffee in a product we called Xenoplex. And we, you know, made it available. And what I found is that um, my own personal multiple chemical sensitivity was about 90% gone after doing Um, that. Sorry to interrupt. How, how many of those suppositories or how often do you have to do that before it started? Uh, I took 10 suppositories and that was it. Okay. So is that like every day or do oh, you have, no, no. Oh, okay. Oh yeah. So it was one a day for 10 days and then I was out the other end of chem of uh, multiple chemical sensitivity. And that seems to be about right. Um, for most of the people I work with. Sorry to interrupt again. In yeah. those 10 days, did you have a Herx? Yes. Okay. So let's talk about that. Um, Herx would refer to the death of, in, um, microorganisms and then your body responding to say the lipopolysaccharide content uh, cell walls coming out although even though that's what hertz is herxheimer reaction is people are now using that in the term you're using it just to mean a detox reaction so let's use it now in this new in this new understanding that it's not really being used as a bacterial, as an anti, as a response to bacteria dying or can't, but as just the body dealing with toxins. Okay. Uh, a good detox won't give you a Herx or won't give most people a, a reaction. I didn't personally have one. However, I've worked with some people now, a lot of people who have had really bad multiple chemical sensitivities. And I just want to kind of walk through what happens and I'll come back to it. Someone with multiple chemical sensitivities has an active phase one, but they can't go to phase two. They don't have all the conjugates. And so they go into an elevator. Someone comes in with a lot of cologne. The cologne, everybody in that elevator breathes that cologne and gets phase one detox. But the person with multiple chemical sensitivity doesn't have the conjugates to go to phase two. And so now that chemical is actually more toxic than it was when it came into them. And they actually get sicker because they've rendered that cologne or whatever they're exposed to into a more toxic reactive form with the oxygen addition of the oxygen 
than it would be if they left it alone. Okay, so that explains why these people, why MCS people get so sick when they when they get exposed to certain toxins. For me, it was diesel and uh, and cigarette fumes. Um, so it, it, I I got cleared. Um, what I find is that people with really really bad MCS will have a bad day because even a water soluble toxin is still toxic. So what I explain to them is I say, look, if it's really bad, start with like a half of half of suppository, and the first time you take this, you're just not gonna like like the experience. Um, do it the next day. I know you're not going to want to do it again. And each day you do it, it should get milder and milder until on day by roughly day 10, you shouldn't have much of a reaction at all. And this is how you know the difference between a Herxing reaction and a toxic reaction. So let's talk about this for a moment. Let's say someone takes a zeolite as a detox agent, right? It's as a, a kind of a clathration agent um, the, from um, mineral that's found in the earth. Well, problem is um, there's lots of toxins in the earth. There's mercury and, and, and lead and cadmium and arsenic and aluminum. So zeolites can be full of toxic metals. And if the company doesn't acid wash them first to purify them, well, if a person that eats those zeolites and they hit the stomach acid, and now it releases all those metals, the person's going to feel terrible. And if they go to a, uh, you know, a practitioner and they measure their urine, the practitioner can say, wow, look at all these metals you're, are in your urine. You're releasing it. Stay with it. And the person keeps taking, keeps feeling worse and worse and worse. And eventually they give up because, and feeling like they failed, that they have no discipline and they're sicker than when they started. Well, no, the metals that the practitioner found in the urine wasn't metals they were releasing. It was metals that were being absorbed by the toxic zeolite. And they felt worse and worse and worse because they were getting more and more toxic. The same thing can happen to chlorella grown, you know, in uh, the industrial uh, effluent and out of, uh, say, uh, China out in the ocean by China, if they're growing, excuse me, chlorella and really toxic water, same phenomena, they're taking toxins. And so the rule I have is if a detox, a detox can make you feel worse, a good detox will make most people feel better or neutral. It will make really sick people feel worse because water soluble toxins are so toxic, but each time they do it, it should get better. And if each time they do it, it does not get better. That's the wrong product protocol. It's not working for them either. They're doing a detox that's only half a detox, right? You give a coffee enema to someone who has multiple chemical sensitivities, they can get worse because you're not giving them phase two or because the top. So it's either because A, the product wasn't well thought out. It's not a complete, well-rounded well detox or B, the, to the product is toxic in of itself. So that's a, that's a trap that I want your listeners to be mindful of. If you're doing a detox and you don't feel better relatively quickly, reconsider what you're doing. Definitely. I can think of so many examples of people that get worse and worse and worse and eventually give up. They feel like failures and it's not their fault. They didn't fail anything. What they were doing just wasn't the right protocol or complete protocol for them. Yeah. You know, have faith in your own observation of your own experience and your own intuition. If your intuition is saying, don't do this, don't, you know, pay attention and listen and, and, and trust trust that guidance and trust your own body. So, you know, another issue that can happen is um, there's actually a third phase called phase three. So phase one is the cytochrome P450 enzymes preparing the toxin. Phase two is the, is the conjugation rendering the toxin water soluble. Phase three is what it leaves. And most of it's going to come out the urine. Some of it comes out the bile. 
And so that means your gallbladder, your liver, and your kidneys need to be moving properly. And a lot of people, they're not. And the way I would ex explain this to people is, let's say you are tasked with cleaning up a really old house that no one's been in for 20, 30, 50, 100 years. And you know, you open the door and you can see there's half an inch of, of dust on the floor of the house. Okay, so the, the right way to do this is you open the door all the way and you just walk a foot in and start sweeping it out the door and you work your way in and maybe wear a dust mask. The wrong way to you know open up all the windows too. The wrong way is to go in, there's so much clutter, you can barely get in the door. You, you gotta slide your way through the door the door is mostly closed. The windows are closed. You start sweeping and man, there's just dust everywhere. And it's just a mess. That's the wrong way to clean the house. It's the wrong way to clean the body too, right? The doors and the windows would be the liver and the gallbladder and the kidneys. We got to make sure they're open so that when we start cleaning the stuff out, it spends the least amount of time in the body. Because remember, even a water-soluble toxin still toxic. We want it to spend the least amount of time and just go right out into the toilet. And so we have a product called Glitamins, which is um, sort of a remake of a combination of a, a liver gallbladder flush and a kidney flush. Have you ever? Yes. Gallbladder flushes are not, they're not appealing. They're not fun. I know people who cannot get through them because they're gagging because they just can't handle the amount of mm. oil that you're supposed to do. Yeah. When you were talking about that, I was like, yeah. Ooh, <laughs> and I'm sure other people were too. <laughs> Yeah. So for the people who have never heard of a gall liver gallbladder flush, basically what you're doing is you're drinking. Sometimes you'll prepare the whey with a little bit of malic acid uh, just to soften the stones, um, which is found in apples. And then what you do is uh, like a, uh, an enormous amount, like half a cup or more of olive oil, uh, followed uh, with Epsom salts. And what the Epsom salts do is they dilate the sphincter of odi, the little muscular ring muscle at the base of the gallbladder. So it opens up. And the, all the olive oil triggers the body to squeeze a bunch of bile out. And the idea is if you do that hard enough and the sphincter is open, you can pass a bunch of stones. And you can. It'll work sometimes. You can also jam a stone up. And of the three most painful experiences in, in that humans can go through, number one is a gallbladder attack. Number two is a kidney stone. And number three is childbirth. So, you know, um, be careful, you know, with these heroic and dramatic gallbladder purges for two reasons. One, you can get something stuck, three reasons. Um, two, when you, you know, bile is conserved in the body, you recycle 90, 95% of it. So if you start dumping it all out uh, and you can't recycle it all as much as you're dumping, then you can end up being low on bile, which is what can cause the stones in the first place. So this is an example of a, a detox trap where the detox actually causes the problem that you're trying to get rid of. Um, so uh, the third thing is, you know, some people will say, oh, I'm on my 10th liver gallbladder flush and I keep getting out stones. I'm like, well, probably not. Um, you know, the first one, you might've gotten some stones out, maybe the second, but the third one, fourth, fifth, what's going on is you're actually creating pseudo stones by the chemical interaction of the olive oil with bile and all these other things. And they're not actual stones. They're just stones. You're, they're little balls of fat that you're making. So, you know, and then what they do is they're draining themselves completely of bile and now they really are going to have stones. So rather than that, what I'd rather see people do is we, you know, we make a, a suppository called glitamins. The, the reason we would do suppositories is either A, the ingredient won't survive digestion, like glutathione, uh, or EDTA, and we'll talk about that in a minute, or B, the location is really good. So if we're working with the prostate, it's right there. If we're working with the liver, um, all the blood vessels for the liver are right there. 
So we make the liver gallbladder flush as a suppository also. Uh, and the idea I think that's better is slowly melt them over the course of 10 or 20 days and let them come out. You don't even know you're passing them. They're just coming out as, you know, sludge and, and your then little you know, slimy stuff comes out in your stool. Um, I don't, uh, unless someone was trying to avoid gallbladder surgery, you know, within a week or two, and then, then I would be like, okay, let's, let's do, you know, some softening and melting and then do uh, a flush because you just don't have the time. But if you're not, if you have at least a month, I would say, take your time and melt them out slowly. It's, it's much gentler on the body. I think it's more effective to melt them out because now you're getting them out of the liver, the tiny ones, rather than just the big ones in the gallbladder. So that's the, that's another detox product we have. Um, that's incredibly interesting. I actually didn't even know that that was an option. And I don't think almost, I've never heard of melting them and even the chemical reaction needed for that. That's, that's actually, I'm actually like, I'm like ready to go research some more that just because I want to learn how it, how the process works. That's so interesting. My mom just had gallbladder surgery and it was so full of stones that they had to make the incision bigger to pull her gallbladder mm -hmm. out. Maybe we can talk about that because I can think of four people in my family who have had their gallbladder removed. Right. Well, I mean, you don't have to take our product. You can buy Chanka Piedra and that will work really well too. Um, I think that our product, you know, is, is fantastic just because it was designed, you know, with a lot of correlate factors, but, you know, don't feel obligated you know, to get that, you can just start making, if you, if it's, if you have four people in your family, you know, there's a, uh, an indication that that's something that you might end up having to work on. Um, you know, you can palpate under your rib cage on the right side to feel if your liver is a little tense, you can look up the gallbladder meridian on, on the internet and press on the points in your feet, see if they're sore. And, you know, for you, um, you know, a little chunk of Piedra Chi once or twice a week, um, since, you know, you, you're interested in kind of food solutions, that could be a great way for you to uh, work with that uh, particular genetic potential. That is very good to know. Thank you for that. Yeah. Cause that it, I didn't, I didn't think about like, Oh, that could happen to me, but now I'm like, Hmm. But yeah. then I just think about all the people who are dealing with this or are concerned about this and being able to have some sort of solution that's not so aggressive, mm -hmm. I think, and can actually lead to more issues is fantastic. Let's say I don't know if you can answer this, but let's say somebody has had their gallbladder removed and they don't have that bile mm. exit. Well, it's still coming out. So I would still do, and I get this question a lot. I would still do glitamines even, even with, and especially if they've had the gallbladder out because the problem, the, the gallbladder was not the problem. It was the bag that the problem was falling into. The right. problem is actually happening in the liver, right? And it's this accumulation of crud and junk um, that, you know, so you can have these things in the liver as well as the gallbladder. Uh, the challenge with people with a gallbladder having been removed is that they don't have the ability to meter dose bile into their gut relative to the food they're eating. Um, so, uh, and then, and then, and then, so you also have issues with fat digestion. So, you know, you could take supplemental vitamin, the fat supple, the fat cycles of vitamins, you could add those in as a supplement. Uh, and do a little bit more co coconut oil because that's an oil that doesn't really need bile to be absorbed. That's really helpful. And and then also be taking bile with your meals, you know, take a bile supplement with your meal. Yes. Sure. Heck, I do that and I have a gallbladder. <laughs> I'm a big fan yeah. of enzymes, especially when we know that digestion 
is off and it's off for a lot of people. Um, you know, sometimes you'll take them ongoing. Sometimes you take them more as needed or things like that. Um, right. So the enzymes is really more, um, if the pancreas was starting mm-hmm. to have problems, um, and the bile would be if the gallbladder was starting to have issues or not there anymore. But again, I take both of them and I have, I think a decent pancreas and gallbladder and I intend to yeah. keep them. <laughs> keep them functioning as well as they can for as long as yeah. they can. Yeah. I, I, I'm happy helping those guys out. They do so much for me. That's awesome. This is absolutely fascinating. So we've talked about, you know, the the three different stages of detox. We've talked about the windows needing to be open. Mm-hmm. Um, what's mm-hmm. what's next? Well, you know, um, we could talk about metals. We've talked about chemicals, detoxing chemicals. You also have to detoxify metals. And there's about eight really nasty chemicals that are out there. They're mostly catalytic, meaning that they keep causing problems over and over. Um, and they're hard to get rid of. Uh, and so uh, what you want now is a soap for the metals. And that's uh, any, you know, acids are soaps for metals, right? They'll bind to, so lactic acid, you exercise, you're going to chelate a little bit. You eat fermented foods with, with acidic acid, the vinegar, that will chelate a little bit. My favorite chelator, my favorite acid is EDTA, ethylene diamine tetracetic acid, which is a fancy name for four proteins, uh, you know, tetras, uh, sorry, um, tetracetic, four vinegar groups, and ethylene diamine. So there's your protein. So protein and vinegar, right? So it's, that's my favorite chelator because uh, it goes after so many things. Um, and normally it's done by IV. So I taught myself how to do IVs on my own arm. And I, it was a, that's not something I enjoyed doing and I wouldn't recommend it. So I wanted to do chelation and I decided I am not going to do this anymore. So, um, you know, we have a suppository chelator because you can't take it orally. It will get destroyed. Well, it's very difficult to take EDTA orally uh, because most forms will get destroyed because it's a protein. So we can take it rectally. Um, and the EDTA will bind to all these metals and you can urinate them out, which is great. One of the things that I think makes our product, uh, the product's called metacardium. I think it makes it pretty special is it's a calcium-free EDTA. Most of the EDTAs in the marketplace um, they're with calcium because that's the cheap stuff you can buy in bulk. The stuff I have is a magnesium based and you have to have it made custom for you in a lab. Um, but the reason I like that better, there's a number of reasons, but for this application, it's because calcium acts as a toxic metal as we get older. Um, right. So calcium uh, gets into the tissue, you know, it gets in the breast, you get breast calcifications, you get calcifications in the prostate, calcifications in the kidneys, kidney stones, calcification in the, in the brain, in the arteries, in the calcium. You know, we calcify as we get older, we turn to stone. Uh, and it can also, uh, calcium can also mix with saturated fats to make something called a, a, a metal soap, which is a basically completely um, um, insoluble and indigestible fat that can get into the tissue that it's tricky to get out. I'll I'll tell you how to do it. Um, And so, so the way EDTA works is it can only, it's a musical chair kind of thing. It'll hold onto one metal and let go for another. So if you have a calcium based EDTA, it can't grab onto another calcium, same affinity, but it can grab onto lead. Great. Yeah. Now you can pee the lead out. But if you have a magnesium based EDTA, it can bump into calcium and grab the calcium and let go of the magnesium which is great because we tend to be magnesium deficient. And now you have calcium EDTA going into the bloodstream. Wonderful. The calcium EDTA bumps into lead or nickel or whatever. And now it lets go of the calcium because it wants a toxic metal even more. 
wonderful. Now the calcium is a nutritional element and you can use that nutritionally, right? Because it's been removed from the tissue where, where it didn't belong. And now it can go into the bones and the teeth. And so EDTA is a really great way to support the body in getting rid of these metals, metals because the metals are really the driving force um, and the chemicals are, are the driving force for um, so much of what goes on. Um, you know, like calcium, it looks like um, lead looks like calcium in terms of the valence and the size and everything. So it binds in the bones, which is why it takes so long to get it out. Cadmium looks like zinc. So it goes in the brain and the eyes and the prostate. Mercury looks like selenium. So it goes into the thyroid and aluminum looks like magnesium. It goes in the muscles and so on. And, you know, these metals get stuck in their membrane transporters and they gum everything up. It's sort of like, you know, uh, imagine somebody, you know, uh, who was playing a really bad practical joke, just took crazy glue and put it into, you know, all over the place, you, you know, your car ignition and your door locks and, and, and just, you know, just glued everything together. That's, that's what these metals can end up doing. They just glue with everything makes it very hard for the body to move things around. And like I said, they're catalytic toxins. So EDTA is a great thing to do. Um, if you're dealing with mercury, EDTA is not the best way to go if you have a, mer a, a serious mercury load because it can cause redistribu redistribution. What can happen is if your EDTA binds to mercury, which it can, and then find bumps into some FE3, which is oxidized iron, which people also have, it can let go of the iron for the mercury and the mercury can move from one place to another place. Uh, which can cause a problem. So I offer consultations. If somebody wants to know how to get rid of mercury in particular, I'll give them a link of what the right chelator for mercury is. So just be careful with mercury. That's got its own kind of set of rules. So testing is important. Um, you know, it's, you can do a hair mineral test for like a hundred bucks and change. Yeah. Um, it's a little tricky because high mercury doesn't always show up as high mercury in your hair. Sometimes it won't show up because your body can't get rid of it and you'll have to see it from another indication like a dysregulation of the macro elements like sodium, potassium, magnesium, and calcium. And there's ways to do it, but, uh, and you could certainly learn for yourself or you know, find a good practitioner. But yeah, um, mercury is something that you have to be mindful of. Yeah. And, you know, if you've ever had fillings, the metal fillings and things like mm -hmm. that, then there's definitely, you're definitely getting exposed to mercury all the time. And then you know, there's other ways to get exposed for sure. Overabundance of fish and all kinds of things. Yeah. If you're going to eat fish, eat the, the ones that are small, not the predators. So don't do like the, the swordfish and the tuna. Do more like the salmon and the sardine because fish is still good for you. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I um have learned to love sardines. So mm. I don't do tuna anymore. Sometimes if I go out for sushi, but it's not even my favorite. But like, if I'm just going to do like something at home, canned sardines, because then you also get the bones and you get all the, all the other stuff. They're one of the most nutrient dense foods that you can eat. Yeah. But careful with canned sardines. Cause what happens is, um, fish tends to be really high in histamine mm -hmm. yes. and canned fish gets really high in histamine. So the highest histamine food you're ever going to eat is going to be canned sardines. If you have a histamine problem, don't do canned sardines. And if you are, don't do things like lemon juice, which is going to be a histamine releaser. And, you know, maybe you can take some probiotics. There are a bunch of probiotics you can learn to make yogurt with that will actually bind to histamine in the gut. So there's ways to play with histamine, but just if you're eating, if you're eating um, a lot of sardines and suddenly you're fine, you're getting a lot of itchy skin, that's probably what's going on. There's yeah, there's always, it's always a balance. You, you can overdo anything. Yeah. 
I was so bummed to find it out because I love sardines. And I'm like, oh, oh my gosh. I was, I was just going, I haven't seen them in any other form. Now I'm going to have to do some research. Yeah. Because uh, yeah. that's how that's how I eat them. I don't eat them often. It's probably a couple times a month. But now it's just more research for me. <laughs> that's that's really good to know. Any kind of fish um, that is not completely fresh uh, tends to get histamine. It's just part of fish tissue but it's certainly uh, massively accelerated when it's canned. Good to know. So now I need to find some frozen sardines. Yes. Um, yeah. What I like is um, salmon and um, salmon roe from, you know, get shipped in from Alaska. You know, there is another kind of toxin, uh, two, a couple more classes of toxins. If we have time, I'd like to talk to you about. Yeah, let's do it. Okay. So eating toxic fad foods, this would be oxalates. Now, during the Great Depression, there was um, concern about all the malnutrition that was happening. And, you know, a lot of a lot of families were starving; they couldn't afford food. And so, think tanks got together and said, "Okay, is there any food that's really good that people just don't eat because they don't think it's a good idea? You know, maybe just it's cultural." And they're like, "Hey, how about spinach? It's so nutritious. How are we going to get people to eat spinach? Hey, let's get a PR campaign. How about a how about a comic character? How about a cartoon character?" And that's Popeye the Sailor Man to get people to eat spinach, right? In the depression. Problem is spinach is very high in oxalates, which are these elements that can combine with calcium. They, they form needles and sharp spikes inside the body. They crystallize and they can also combine with calcium to form really, you know, and kidney stones and all sorts of things. Take a look at, you know, there's a lot of fad foods that are really high in oxalates, you know, not all kale, but a number of them are very high in oxalates. I think chia seeds might be one of them. So oxalates are a nasty thing. And, you know, how do we get rid of them? Okay, well, uh, Epsom salt baths are a great way to go because the sulfate displaces the oxalate and the magnesium makes it 200 times more soluble. And so you can urinate it out. So Epsom salts are the soap for oxalates, right? Um, which is, you know, why historically certain waters, certain hot springs are considered healing hot springs or, or sacred springs because they're full of that you know, uh, magnesium sulfates and such. Um, so there's another way you can get rid of oxalates because oxalates are only one of 22 um, crystallizations that are common. There's 22 common things that can crystallize in the body. Uh, oxalates are just one of them. So a crystal is something that can be a toxin, right? Uh, crystals can form from metals or they can be something that's not toxic by what it is, but by virtue mechanically of what it does and how it grows. So let's talk about the metal crystals for a minute. Um, have you ever dealt with people that have um, EMF sensitivity? Yes. Okay. So in World War II in, uh, in Italy, if, the, Germ if the, the Nazis caught someone with a radio, they would kill them. But of course, the Italians want, and other people wanted to know what's going on in the world. And so they would make what are called um, foxhole radios, which was lead from a pencil because back then pencils had lead in them and a razor blade and a safety pen and you made a little radio because crystals especially lead and metal crystals can be the functioning part of a, of a radio so metal can crystallize in the body with other things and can act like a little radio antenna and little radio receivers and so now you get somebody who walks into a place and there's a little bit of 5g going on but it's a million times worse from them because they're so full of these little crystals that they have all these little foxhole radios in their tissue and they're just picking up all the signals. So one great way to work with people 
who have EMF sensitivities to break those crystals down. You get them to urinate the crystals out, and now they basically urinating all these little radio receivers out of their body. EDTA, you know, our metacardium chelator, um, if you can remove metals, that's part of the crystal phenomena, uh, and Epsom salts to a degree. But the challenge is once crystals reach a certain size, I think it's oh, seven nanometers. I have to go and look at my notes. Once, once they reach a certain size, um, yeah, seven nanometers. Um, below seven nanometers, crystals are, are relatively soluble. You can, you can urinate them out, you can break them down. Once they cross that seven nanometer threshold, they kind of become resistant to being broken down by methods that the body has naturally. And then they start to grow. It's 10,000 times more difficult um, to dissolve them once they cross the seven nanometer threshold. So then the question is, how do we get them to get back below seven nanometers so we can get rid of them? So we can use EDTA and all these things. And that led me to um, grounding. Have you ever looked into grounding? Oh my gosh, that's one of my favorite things. Okay. Um, so grounding, so what happens is the sun puts out electrons. They come across on the solar wind. They hit our atmosphere. They go from the atmosphere to the earth via lightning strikes. And then the earth basically is a giant battery for us, free electrons. Now we evolved with near water sources. So we don't have the ability to store a lot of water. Three days of that water, boy, you're a person's in trouble. But we didn't evolve with a continual source of food. You could have famine. You could have, you know, it could be bad weather. It could, you know, so we do have the ability to store food and that's body fat, right? So we can store food. That's body fat. We can't store water. We're in trouble without water. We'd also, unless you're a Tai Chi master, you can't store electrons because they were like water. We evolved where electrons are always free. You want some electrons, put your foot on the ground. There you go. If you're barefoot, you're always getting electrons. And so all the, the, the metabolic engines of the body expect an infinite free source of electrons. Now, when you're taking antioxidants, what you're really doing is you're taking transport mechanisms for electrons. It's the electron that's doing the work. I would personally rather have a very low level of antioxidants or a, 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 a minimal amount of antioxidants, but all the electrons I need, and then each antioxidant can continually shuttle the electrons millions of times a second where they need to go, versus an enormous supply of antioxidants they all get to use that I get to use one time, and then the electron's gone, and now I have to actually get rid of the thing, because it's, now it's waste material. So I think that the, the fad with antioxidants is misplaced. I think, yes, you do need antioxidants, but they're just the transport mechanisms for the electrons, and the electrons are actually doing the work. You need those too. What happens is, I, I imagine you've got, um, imagine you just bought an RV, right? You're tired, you buy an RV, you want to do a little travel. And the first winter comes along, and you're not traveling, you just let the RV sit un, unused over the winter. And you come back, you try to turn it on in the springtime to go out to the coast, and your battery is dead. You bring the battery in, they say, this battery is dead as a doornail, it's discharged. Um, and you have to buy a new battery. Okay. Uh, and they say, by the way, next time disconnect your battery for the winter. Okay. Next, next season comes, you put a new battery in and you disconnect it. Great. You put it back in in the spring, you turn the, you, you put the battery back in. It doesn't turn on. You bring it in. They goes, no problem. We just have to recharge it. Recharges the battery, turns on, you're good to go. Someone next to you says, Hey, by the way, next time, don't just disconnect it. Put a trickle charger on it so the battery stays charged through the whole winter. You do that, and then the next spring comes along, trickle charged, your battery starts right up, you're good to go. 
Okay, why am I talking about RP batteries? Because we every cell in the body is a little battery. And what happens is because we're not constantly grounded, we're not constantly getting electrons, the electrons, the earth is the trickle charger. And because we're out of connection with it, crystals form inside the body. Now, these crystals also are part of what the EMF sensitivity is. The crystals are part of what the EMF sensitivity is, right? Why couldn't you recharge that dead battery, the first one? It's because it got so crystallized that it couldn't hold a charge anymore. And the same thing happens with the body. The more crystallized we become, the less we can hold a charge. But unlike the RV battery, we can't just replace all of our cells. We have to recover the battery. So what do you do if you have to recover the battery? Well, there is a way to recover batteries that are crystallized. You have to put in voltage spikes. The reason this works is when, if you were to squeeze a crystal, you get electricity out. That's how piezoelectric lighters work. But opposite, if you run electricity into a crystal, the crystal vibrates. Well, if you put enough electricity in, the, the crystal vibrates and explodes. So you can use electricity if you know how to do it to cause these crystals to explode below the seven nanometer size, then you can pee them out and you're good to go. So I built a machine that does a couple of things. It has the, sends a signal uh, to uh, explode crystals, right? For when the battery is completely full of crystals and can't recharge. And then it has a setting to recharge the body once the crystals are out. It took me about two years. You blow up the crystals, so you can urinate them out or get them out with chelators like metacardium. And then you recharge the batteries of the body. And when you get the body, when you get the crystals out and you get recharged, then grounding is all you need, right? But until then, grounding won't really do what you, a lot of people do grounding and they're like, well, it's good. I feel better, but I was hoping for more. And the reason it really didn't help them as much as it could have is because they're all crystallized and they can't absorb the electricity out of the earth. And even if they're not crystallized, it's a trickle charge. You can't recharge a dead battery with a trickle charge. You can maintain it. You can't recharge a dead, um, discharged human cells with earth, with the power of the earth. It's not meant for that. It's not strong enough. It's a, it's a trickle charge. Now I've been using a machine I call, it's called an electron charger. I've been using it for a few years. I'm now at the point now where I've got all the crystals out and I've got myself at enough of a charge. I don't really need it. And just, you know, walking barefoot or, you know, going for a swim is enough, but it took two years to do. It was a process. And um, so the electron charger is, um, it's a fun technology. I enjoy it. We have a practitioner here in the Valley who specializes in that and he uses it for, oh, different therapies for sports injuries, for traumatic brain injuries, things like that. Um, I don't, I think he's talked about uh, it, how it helps that maybe a handful of times, but I feel like it's so under underutilized. And part of it is, I don't think people know that they need that and they don't understand how heavy metals interact with the body. We know that we need them out. We know that we're exposed to them. We know that we feel bad and that's, you know, that could be a contributing factor, but really understanding how would you know if you have an overabundance of metals that are crystallizing, things like that can, you know, obviously sure. we do it. We talked about hair mineral analysis and I've had somebody come on the podcast who's talked about that a little bit. So we know that that's a tool, but like what other ways can we know? Yeah. Cause I feel like people are going to self-diagnose. They're going to Google, maybe give them a place to start. Well, I mean, the gold standard is a urine challenge test where you, check your urine and then you take a chelator and check it again and look at the difference of what comes out of you. And that's really the best way to do it. There used to be a home 
heavy metal test you could do at home. I don't know if they still make them or not. It's sort of like saying, how do I know if I need to change the oil in my car? <laughs> it's, That's such a it's, great it's, example. It's just the, the nature of having a car and driving for 5,000 miles, you're going to have broken down oil. So yes, you know, there's sometimes when the amount of money you'll spend on the diagnosis would be better spent on the therapy. So would you spend $200 every 5,000 miles to double check to make sure you needed an oil change or just to spend a hundred bucks on the oil change? I would yeah. spend a hundred bucks on an oil change. Yeah. I'm curious, the other practitioner you're talking about, what kind of a machine were they using? You know, I would have to look. I'm not sure. The, I went to a presentation they did maybe four years ago. So it's been a little while. I follow them on on Instagram, but they don't post regularly algorithms, things like that. Um, what I saw was really cool, um, but I don't, I don't was know what it, they uh, use. something you put your feet into? Uh, yes. And oh. then there was also, it was one of those, but then they also had where you did the little round stickies. Like mm. there was, there was, mul there was different ways. Okay. So that's what I thought. So let me um, kind of give you my two cents on both of those technologies. Okay. So the ones you put your feet into, um, a lot of what you're seeing in the water it's not coming from you. It's oxidation from the plates and it's toxic metals in the plates. And now you're actually exposing yourself to toxic metals. That's not to say that these machines don't have benefit. They generate hydrogen and they do have some effects, but they also have some downsides. Um, and then that along with the sticky pads on your arms means there's two, there's two electrodes, right? The foot pad, the ones in the feet and the ones you stick to your body have an in and an out. That means there's no net increase in electrons because you're actually, all the electrons you're putting in are coming out the other electrode. Now, there are certainly a lot of amazing effects from running electricity through the body. But in terms of electrons, you're actually removing electrons from the body because anytime you run a current through the body or near a body, it creates a vacuum that pulls electrons out. So what I would say is there are a lot of amazing technologies out there that use electricity. And I've got a lot of them. I've owned them or I've made them. I use a PEMF device. You know, There's lots of great things out there. It is some of them that are saying they're increasing your electron charge, but most of them aren't. Uh, most of them are actually doing good things, but also removing electrons. So what I would say is if you have a lot of electrical therapeutic devices, uh, understand that there's a vacuum effect created by them that pulls electrons out of you. And when you're done getting all the benefit you can from those machines during your therapy, finish it off with raising your electron level back up. And then you'll get the best, best of both worlds. So good to know. There's always a step two. There's always something that follows up that we don't always are, are maybe not aware of, don't know, aren't told. It goes over, it goes in one year, out the other. Like we just, you know, we hear what we hear. Sometimes we stop. Sometimes we're ready to move on from in our healing journey. But there's there's always so much more that we can do, especially if we are using a healing tool. We need to know how to use it to completion to get mm -hmm. the most benefit. Mm -hmm. So if we have more time, there's a one final class of toxins we could talk about, or we could save it for next time. Nope. Let's, let's get into all of it so that next time we can move on to uh, more. Okay. There are what I call um, primary or and secondary toxins um, of a catalytic nature. So for instance, let's say someone gets exposed to some toxic metals, which everyone's exposed to. They're catalytic. They keep generating toxins. You know, they don't stop until you get rid of them some of the toxins they make are also catalytic and keep causing problems. Okay. 
and I know it sounds a little complicated. I'll give you two examples. One example would be prions. Mm -hmm. Okay. Prions, we know is mad cow or misfolded proteins, but it turns out it's not just mad cow. Basically all neurologic diseases are associated with prions and the body makes prions itself. You don't have to be exposed to one from the outside. You can make it internally. A prion is a misfolded protein. Now we misfold proteins all the time. And we have a whole system called the heat shock protein system that is designed to protect proteins from misfolding, repair the ones it can and get rid of the ones it can't. And of course, if someone has a lot of toxic metals in there, they're going to misfold a lot more proteins. And so the same thing with glyphosate, glyphosate will misfold proteins. Uh, so what can happen is you've got these toxins, the metals and the glyphosates, and they cause proteins to misfold. And now the protein misfolding causes another problem. So let's say you've got um, a misfolded protein and it bumps into a normal protein. It can turn the normal protein into a misfolded protein. Now you've got two misfolded proteins and those two bump into two normal proteins. Then you've got four, eight, 16, 32, and it goes up exponentially, which is why um, neurologic diseases can be so difficult because by the time you, you really get a hold of them, they're off and running exponentially. Now, when by the time someone manifests a neurologic disorder, which are mostly protein folding diseases, we now know that you know Lou Gehrig's uh, MS, cerebral palsy, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, basically all forms of senility, these are all protein folding problems. By the time someone manifests one of these, 20, it's already been growing for 20 years. So if someone is senile at 70, when do they want, when should they have started working on that? They should start working that at 50. So what I'm going to pose to people who are hearing this is if you're 50, you start working on the brain now because it's starting now. You may not get senility, but if you are the kind that will, and that's a large percentage of people, now is the time it's starting. You're not feeling it now, but it's starting now, and it's a lot easier to deal with now. So you want to get rid of these folded proteins. Now, have you heard of amyloid plaque? Yes. Right. So that's made up of misfolded proteins, right? And the plaque is problematic for two reasons, or represents two problems. It represents the mechanical mass of this plaque, which is a problem, because it just gums everything up. And it's what that plaque used to be. It used to be functioning architecture in the nerves and the brains, and that's gone now. And that function has been lost. So it's two problems, actually. So what we want to do is we want to get rid of these misfolded proteins. And basically what it is, is normal proteins have their fat-soluble stuff on the inside and the water-soluble stuff on the outside. So think of it like as an M&M. The, the chocolate on the inside is the fat part, and the outer casing is the water-soluble part. And that way the proteins can move around and you can get them from point A to point B, the body can take the heat shock proteins and say, hey, let's move this protein over here to fix it or to get rid of it. But when the chocolate part comes out of the center, when the fat-soluble part, when it breaks so that some of the fat-soluble part is sticking out of the protein, now it's fat-soluble and it's, it starts to stick in the fat. The heat shock proteins can't really move it around anymore to deal with it and starts to accumulate. So what we need is something that can grab onto these heat shock, to these prions, these misfolded proteins, these fat-soluble toxic proteins and get them to move around again so they can either be droid, which is a little tr tricky because the lysosomes, whose job it is to break these down, um, have a really hard time with these, um, or just urinate them out again. There's something called a cyclodextrin. Um, they're generally recognized as safe. They're actually in food 
naturally to some degree. And they're these microscopic little rings of sugar. And the one that will bind to um, prions and um, fold misfolded proteins is called alpha cyclodextrin. It's got six little pieces of sugar in a ring. The stuff's non-toxic uh, in, in the amounts that you'd use. 97% of it come out in the urine. Uh, the part that doesn't get absorbed in the gut becomes a prebiotic. And the other 3% in, it gets into the body is broken down to carbon dioxide and water. It's pretty non-toxic stuff. Now, the neat thing is the, sh the hole in this cyclodextrin of the alpha cyclodextrin is the exact same size as misfolded protein pieces. So it can grab onto them and now it's water soluble again and you can pee it out. So it's a detox, it's a soap as it were for misfolded proteins. But so anybody who's listening, who's got some concerns about, you know, some neurologic stuff, uh, alpha cyclodextrin can be really helpful. Now, then there's the beta cyclodextrin, which is a seven ring sugar. It's a little bit bigger and it goes after a different kind of um, issue. Uh, one of the things that happens as some people get older is they can develop plaque in the arteries. Now, here's what's, what happens. The metals get in. Again, it's toxic metals. It's toxins. The toxins get in and they jam up the body's ability to break down toxic fats, right? So we have the toxic proteins. We also have toxic fats. We have toxic waxes too, but that's, a, that's for another day. The heat shock proteins are also designed to, to move around the, the fats because the fats, like the proteins, are fragile. They can break. They can go rancid. And they need to be constantly re renewed, recycled, maintained. Uh, and broken down. But if the lysosomes, whose job is to burn these things up, if they get a little alkaline, because they, they're supposed to be acidic, if they get a little alkaline because they're getting stuffed up and, and pH is going a little out of whack uh, and they can't break these things down, then these toxic fats accumulate and start to crystallize. Now, when they get to a certain size uh, and they're insoluble, the body can't get rid of them. And so, to, so you know, what happens is the, um, the body calls in the macrophages, the white blood cells, which have portable lysosomes to try to break down these fats, these toxic fats. But it's sort of like trying to eat an elephant in one bite. Um, they can't do it. And they get their lysosomes all stuffed up and they die and they explode and become what's called a foam cell. But when they die, they release chemoattractants, messengers to bring other macrophages in saying, hey, I couldn't fix this. We need help. I need backup. So they come, they try to eat the toxic fat, they die. And this process continues and continues. And in the same way that toxic proteins can exponentially increase in the brain, toxic fats can actually exponentially uh, increase in the arteries. Now, when someone has arterial plaque, it's not like, you know, sludge inside of a pipe that you can clean out. It's actually in the wall of the artery. And so the plaque of the artery is basically composed of these toxic fats and the dead bodies of all the white blood cells that try to get rid of them. How do we get rid of these toxic fats? They're at a point where they are, they're not soluble anymore. And we already, the metals are inhibiting the body's natural reverse transcript, uh, reverse cholesterol transport. So we can't even get rid of them, even if it could. Well, beta cyclodextrins, the slightly larger sibling to alpha cyclodextrins are the right size to grab onto these toxic fats. And so now that solubilizes it, now you can pee them out. And now when the toxic fats are gone, there's no, the, the call for more and more white blood cells stops. And so now you can, you've got a way to start working on supporting the body dealing with plaque. We make a product called albidextrin, Al for alpha, B, E for beta, dextrin, cyclodextrin. So it's an alpha and beta cyclodextrin. And if you want, you can, you know, we have that available. Um, I took some and I can tell you my, my experience with it. So I have a, a bit of, I'm not gonna say a fatty liver, 
Um, but I was given some really bad pharmaceutical drugs when I was a kid and it damaged my liver. And so um, one of the results of that, I got a little bit of plaque in my arteries. And so I, um, and I looked at it and it was an ultrasound. I'm like, all right, so there's the plaque. I can see the size and the length of it. And I took um, cyclodextrins for a month. And one thing was um, long-term, a month later, the plaque was down by 5%. And you might think 5% is not very much. But if you study plaque in the arteries, you know that a 5% drop at all is huge. That only ever gets worse and doesn't get better. And to have it go down 5% in a month, who knows what that would do in a year, is actually incredibly significant. Now, the other thing that happened is the first day I took it, um, wow, it knocked me on my backside. I had to lay down. Um, and it was a very strange sensation. It was simultaneously almost my impression of it. What it felt like was all the cells in my body being, oh my God, thank you so much. I so needed that and hang on for the ride because this is going to be intense. And I laid there with kind of like the celebration happening in my body. And at the same time, definitely feeling a little out of it. Okay. Uh, and, and that lasts like 15, 20 minutes. And I, I definitely felt it in the liver, you know, it wasn't uncomfortable, but it was intense. Second day I took it, I had to lay down again, but not quite as intensely. Third day, I didn't have to lay down. I was sitting down. I said, I got to sit down. Fourth day, I had to sit down, but, but not for as long. By the time I got to the 10th day, nothing. And like I said before, that's the sign of a good detox. A good detox is one that, you know, if you're really toxic, you feel it. But each day, you feel it less. Because each day, there's less toxins in you. Um, so uh, I, was, I was pretty happy with uh, that. And, you know, I'm 54, right? So... Um, senility, if I'm going to have it, it's starting now. So I'm pretty psyched. Uh, I'm really glad that, you know, these things even exist. Um, you know, it's still relatively new. Um, there's lots of animal studies, uh, and there are some human studies. Uh, but I think that you're going to hear a lot more about cyclodextrins in the um, alternative medical community and the functional medical community uh, over the next couple of years uh, from what we're seeing. Heard of that yet. So I'm excited and I can see where that's going to become really popular really quick. Um, I think, you know, listening to you talk, it's been incredible. I've learned so much. What really stands out to me is that there are different ways to address different problems and it's not just one blanket detox. Um, I feel like mm. we just want a pill for an ill, right? And we, and we really want a magic bullet. We want something that's just going to solve our issues in 10 days. And then we're going to be good to go when really, especially if you're, if you're truly overly toxic or, you know, dealing with, you know, atherosclerosis or the beginnings of it, or it runs in your family, things like that. Like I'm thinking my grandfather uh, had Parkinson's, you know, for over 20 years, the military thinks it was because of the testing mm -hmm. he did and the toxins he was exposed to because no one else in my family has it, but it just, it just gets me thinking about like the, the couple of clients I've had that have been EMF sensitive and how they just felt like they weren't getting help. And I feel like it was because the practitioners they were going to didn't know all the tools available, you know, and sometimes the chelators I feel make the problems worse instead of better. Um, even the IV ones, because they try to use a magic bullet, the same tool for every, every problem. Yeah. I'm more of a fan of the enchanted shotgun than the magic bullet. I like 
um, giving people a lot of simultaneous, mutually supportive protocols um, with the understanding that there are some things that have to be very specifically detoxed. And if you do it, and if a person does it wrong and a well-meaning practitioner doesn't understand that, they can actually set their client back a little bit. And I, I feel like that's a lot of people's stories, right? They jump from practitioner to practitioner and they get a little piece answered all the time. Um, what also stands out to me is that people can come to you, get that consult and get a more targeted therapy, which I think is just really incredible and exciting, really, because I feel like I've I've heard detox talked about for literally years and I've never heard it explained in this way, in layman's terms, the way that you've explained it. Um, you know, I'm not a medical professional, I'm a health coach. And, so, you know, when people really get into the science, it becomes Greek, you know, and my job as a health coach mm. is I'm like, how can this be applied? And what can I understand? Mm. You know, you've talked about your, um, it's a remedy link, correct? Your website. Mm -hmm. And you've talked about some of the solutions you have. If somebody's just getting started, like they're listening to this and they're like, okay, this makes sense. I want to move forward. How would they do that? So our basic detox is the metacardium, zeniplex, and glutamines. It's metals, chemicals, and then liver, gallbladder, kidney, which are the doors and windows. And, you know, you do a different one every night for 30 days. And that's sort of like your yearly your yearly detox. Um, the oil change? Yeah. And that's more than enough for most people. Having said that, if someone has got a lot of environmental exposure, you know, based on they, they were a hairdresser or worked in a dry cleaning company or something, you've got to you have to stay with whichever class of toxins you've got and the detoxifier for it until you get to baseline. And then you can do it just once a year. So, you know, people might have a loading phase based on their own personal, um, and, you know, experience and what they, what, where they've been, you know, and then that's, that's sort of like the basics. If you could start with that, then, you know, you don't end up with some of these secondary toxins, right? Um, because it's the, it's the primary, it's the metals and the chemicals that are then creating toxins in the body that then create other toxins. So this kind of hopscotch, you know, effect. Um, but if, you know, you're, if you're four, if you're in your fifties, you know, um, then you also want to think to yourself, okay, uh, what are the, th what are the three ways in which, um, you know, three things that tend to get people as they get older, right? So, um, you know, turn of the century, you know, last century, what were we, you know, average lifespan, 30, 40, 50 years old, depending, right? Um, and then now it's 80. And so now we're living to a point where we're dealing with things that mm, the human body was never really dealing with before. There's a lot of cancer, a lot of heart attack, a lot of senility, a lot of stroke. Um, so, you know, detox, if you could start it early, I think it does it is it's hugely beneficial. There was a study out of Switzerland, I think it was Dr. Bloomer, uh, and this might have been in the 50s or 60s. And uh, they said, I think it was 20 chelation sessions, something like that. The lifetime risk of cancer and heart attack was 90 and 86% reversed, uh, re reduced. And I don't remember which one was which, but they're both so close. That's huge, right? Um, but then again, that was a less toxic time than now. So, you know, detox is really important. Um, but, you know, once the toxins have been around long enough, then you have to start thinking, okay, not only do I have to detox what caused the problem, but I have to detox the problem that it has caused. I have to start, how do I get rid of these folded proteins now? 
because getting rid of the metals, the protein, the folded proteins are still there. How do I get rid of these toxic fats in the arteries and get rid of the metals and the chemicals, but the toxic fats are still there, you know, pulling in um, macrophages to their doom, you know? So there's a lot to detox. It's, but you don't have to become an expert in detox to do it. You know, if you understand just a few things, look, let's just get rid of some metals and chemicals and hey, let's get rid of some folded proteins and fats. That's that's pretty pretty much most of it right there. And then being the health coach, I want to talk about diet and lifestyle a little mm-hmm. bit. So, you know, obviously we know that food plays a role. Um, so let's say people are thinking, okay, I know that I'm dealing with this. I want to go forward. You know, what is, what do they need to know about diet in relation to also doing these? So you, you don't have to change your lifestyle at all to use these. You know, I heard an old naturopath once say, if you can't get your client to have a soda and a hot dog at the, at the ball game and not get sick, you haven't really fixed them. So it's not for me to judge, you know, what you want to do with your life. If you want to, you know, it's totally fine for someone to say, I want to keep smoking and drinking and eating fast food. Do the best you can with me. I'm like, okay, that's fine. Right. I mean, no one gets out of here alive. So if that's what they want to do with their time, that's cool. So I think the goal as a practitioner is to to find out what your client wants. And, you know, if they want some dietary advice, great. So what I would say is um, Price Pottinger, you know, found what's pretty much the optimal diet for humans. Uh, these were some people that looked at who was healthy uh, at the turn of last century and what cultures, they defined a, a healthy diet as one in which the culture experienced uh, no birth defects, no criminality, no insanity, and beautiful, healthy people. And so, you know, you're looking at a little bit of meat, some fermented food, um, you know, a little bit of grain, a little bit of beans, some vegetables, a little bit of fruit in season, minimal amount of seed oils. Uh, you know, I mean, you could look at nourishing traditions, all those books. I mean, they'll, they'll tell you how to do things. You know, you have to be a little mindful. So, you know, broths are great, but if you're, if you react to glutamate broths will mess you up. So you can't do those. So, you know, you just, you know, there are some general rules for diets and then you want to custom it based on either a genetic analysis you've done for yourself, if you've done that, or your personal experience of how you feel. I can't do histamines. I can't do glutamates. So, you know, I don't do broths, even though I love them. Um, and I don't, you know, do, um, uh, you know, high histamine foods. So yes, I'll do fermented foods, but I'll ferment my own foods with low histamine or histamine reducing bacteria. So little hacks versus the average ferments, which are increased in histamine. So, you know, what I would say is, you know, we already know what the optimal diet is roughly, you know, um, sorry, um, Mrs. Fallon already wrote books on that. Just add to that, that just because that's a starting point from there, you know, if you're allergic to a certain kind of food, why trigger your immunity continuously and drag down your albumin levels and cause those kind of problems. So avoid the things you're allergic to, avoid the things that metabolically you don't process very well, and then enjoy what you eat, you know, make it a celebration. That's my favorite right there. That's, that's my complete approach as well. Although I do push, you know, eating as clean as possible, just because you want to feel your best. You want to get the most nutrients you can. You want your body to be fueled with the right gasoline versus pouring apple juice in the tank type of thing. Um, but yeah, that, the, 
what's the word? Basically where you can eat junk and not feel crap, like horrible after that's resiliency. We want to be able to be resilient because we want to be able to live our life. We want to be able to enjoy a glass of wine or to be able to enjoy the birthday cake and not be fearful of it or anything Mm -hmm. like that. But there is, we know the basics. And if we start there and you avoid the foods that inflame you. Well, you know, um, I guess, um, where, what I would end with would be sort of like a teaser for, I guess, our next podcast, if you'd like to do that. And uh, what I would say is that um, in terms of eating, we don't eat what we ate 10,000 years ago. And partially because those foods don't exist anymore. So um, the apples and grapes and carrots of 10,000 years ago were much more bitter than they are today. But we don't, And the bitter is all the medicinal elements in the plant, right? Um, but we have selectively bred bitter out of our food and it made it sweeter and less bitter. So m- fuels more infection and with less of the medicine in the food to prevent it because the bitters are the plant medicines because plants deal with the same things we do, viruses, fungi, parasites, bacteria, cancer. And so, you know, we can't get the kind of foods that we used to eat. Uh, and the other thing is, um, historically, we ate a lot of tubers, you know, the um, hunter gatherers, you know, would not eat meat every meal because they were not successful at every hunt. Historically, statistically, about every three hunts, you're successful. So the um, early humans were eating a lot of tubers and a lot of mushrooms and a lot of seaweed, raw honey. And these things all had the, uh, a class of prebiotics that would feed the microbiome. And we don't eat those now. So we're eating foods that don't support the microbiome don't have the medicines the, uh, that they used to have in them for our for our, for our, our bodies and are way high on sugar. And so I guess what I we could talk about in the next um, podcast is without necessarily heading off to Tanzania or the Australian outback and living as um, a primitive human, how can you recreate possibly with supplements if they're you know which we have a few, the diet of a primitive human, right? So I don't want to spend the rest of my life barefoot on the ground because I live in a house um, and my feet are too soft, honestly, to walk around barefoot all the time. But the electron charger gives me what I would have been getting 10,000 years ago. So we could talk about what food doesn't give us now that we have to intentionally add back in in order to have a good relationship with food in our bodies. I would love that. So we'll get that on the calendar. Thank you so much for joining us today. This has been incredible and such a learning experience for me. And I'm just like, I'm ready to like go and dive into more research and maybe ask you more questions and like, just have you back on and continue the discussion. Well, thanks, Mary. And that was really great speaking with you. Thank you so much for hanging out with me today. If you found this episode helpful, would you do me a favor and help others find it by leaving a review, sharing a screenshot on social media, or sharing the link with a friend? By you sharing what you've learned, others are able to find this podcast and join our community. Be sure to check out my website, www.roadtolivingwhole.com for over 160 delicious recipes, a variety of meal plans, and a blog packed full of even more healthy living tips. If you'd like to learn more about how to work with me as your coach, you can schedule a free consult through www.roadtolivingwhole.com backslash health 
coaching backslash. Until next time, friend. Bye.